Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 to 19, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth uh, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosened uh, in heaven. I want to focus um, our attention on one particular part of this uh, text, which is verse 18, where Jesus says, I, I will build my church. I will build my church. Uh, men uh, can build buildings. I believe you're sitting in one that is built by men. And actually men can gather organizations but from a biblical perspective, only Jesus can build the church. Now, it's worth saying that over the years, uh, there has been churches that have been uh, built by men. And I would want you to know this from my heart, that, that I don't want uh, the church to, this church to be built by men. But here, J Jesus addresses history and says, I will build my church that he means that he will supernaturally construct something of his own design. So it's his design. It's not ours. In fact, my opinion and your opinion in regard to his church does not count. He builds something that is supernatural from his own design. And for my years, the short years here at Gateway Church, it has actually been my prayer. I'm going to confess to you now something of my own uh, personal uh, sort of wake-up things that I do in the morning, uh, which is that um, the way that it works is that I shower, Callie showers, uh, we have uh, breakfast together, then we pray together. Uh, the major prayer item at the moment uh, is my daughter marrying Tim Harmon, but apart from that, the other, the other item has actually been, God, will you build your church? And I can honestly say this to the majority of time that I've been here, Callie and I have been committed to that prayer. And it is my desire not only to pray for that, but it is my desire to actually attend a church that Jesus is building. I don't really want to go to one unless he's building it. And it is my passion also, just so that you might get a little bit jumpy, it is also my passion to remove anything that Jesus is not building. And that was what we must do. And the elders will know that sometimes I get very jumpy about things like that. And they have to calm me down a little bit. But I do get jumpy about things that doesn't sort of have at his heart Jesus. So then... To the story, the disciples walked, uh, were walking along uh, the dusty roads of, of a place called Caesarea Philippi, and they were in a, a sort of exile, really. Uh, the leaders and the religious leaders and the political powers, as well as the people of Israel, had rejected them wholesale. 
and uh, they'd rejected them and they had rejected their leader. They'd rejected their message. And the disciples had understood now that Jesus were not, that, they, that these people were not only uh, disinterested in, uh, in Jesus, they now wanted him dead. The stakes had changed. The disciples, though, knew that he was the Messiah and had confessed. So Peter, in verse 16, had said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as he, he's saying that, I want you to imagine revelation coming to some of them as they were there, some nodding, some of them going, really? But there was a sense of which this was a poignant moment that had captured something. They had summed up what, what, what they were now feeling. They were convinced that this was God in human flesh. The Son of God was standing amongst them. The Messiah, the anointed King, the promised one. The problem with that statement is that now they're alone with those feelings. They're alone with the convictions. Few people now identified and affirmed it. And for the most part, the King, as they now saw it, and the Kingdom was rejected. So things looked very bleak. It was discouraging. And in a few moments, Jesus was going to add to their discouragement because he would say to them, and by the way, I will die. It was a statement that would be so devastating to this group that were feeling now marginalised that Peter rises almost to speak on behalf of them and says, no, no. You can't die. It won't happen. And Jesus, it says, rebuked him. Incredible rebuke. Get, me, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You can imagine, can't you, all the emotions. They seem to be in the wrong place. Confessing what they have believed about Jesus with things not going to plan. Because in their mind, they had imagined something like a, a spiritual awakening, a revival that would have swept into Israel with Jesus at the head and they sort of behind as part of the, the leaders of this new revival. They'd expected that Israel would turn from their sin, would respond to their message and embrace the Messiah. They'd expected a political takeover of Israel. They'd expected the land that was, that was taken away from Israel to be returned. They expected that the Messiah would have thrown out Rome and thrown out the yoke of Roman rule and established a kingdom. Not just a kingdom, but this kingdom, with, with all the promises that said, it will touch the world. It will go out and touch the whole uh, world. And it just was not going that way. This little group had retreated north, and had gone into the farthest northern point of Israel. Out of the way they had gone. They were now 
in the area which we now know today as Lebanon. They were at the foot of the mountains. They're in an obscure place that is mostly populated by Gentiles that have come across over the border to find work. Caesarea Philippi. We just need some space, maybe. We, perhaps we need to regroup. We actually are there for safety. It looked like the messianic plan of redemption to save the world was an utter failure. The world was getting it wrong. They were getting it wrong. And imagine into this, they are up there in the north end saying, we have given everything for this. We've abandoned everything. We have given everything that we have got. And we're struggling with an unfulfilled hope. It, they'd given a major investment to follow in this person, Jesus Christ. They'd given their lives. And the hostility around them was not quite as they had expected. Their despair and their broken-heartedness would get worse, which I've said, because he was going to be at kill. He's going to leave us. He's going to leave us in this mess, in this state, amongst these people. He's going to leave us. And it's into this context that Jesus gathers them and addresses them and says, I will build my church. It's a strange word, actually, because he'd never said anything about church before. They must have gone, what? He didn't say, I'll build my temple, or build my tabernacle. He went, I'll build my church. I went, oh, okay then. What he's actually saying is this. I know it doesn't look very hopeful, I know the plan isn't unfolding in the way that you think it should unfold. I know that you think it isn't working, but I will build something here and you will see it. Not only that, he then adds, and by the way, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is reminding them and reminding us that you can't tell by appearance. You can't tell right now what God will do. You cannot say right now that God will not meet with us and supernaturally shoot through us and something of the power of God will catch us. We cannot go on appearances. And it's wonderful that this promise shoots through. If you turn, you don't have to turn it. If you look at the, the letter that, uh, if you remember the church that uh, at Smyrna, uh, the Lord uh, gave a letter to John, said, I want you to send a messenger to Smyrna. And part of that letter says, I know your tribulation and I know your poverty. That's the appearance. And then he says this, but you are rich. <laughs> it's wonderful, isn't it? You know, I, I am a tribulation and poverty person. That's the way that I'm wired. Glass half empty. God 
wants to deal with that in my heart, wants to deal with that in your heart and say to you, do you see things the way that he sees things? Do you see from his perspective or you, your perspective? People see tribulation and poverty and he says, no, rich. Here the perspective of God. There are some of you right now who are listening to earthly and ungodly and demonic forces that are saying to you one thing and God would want to come to say to you this, poverty, tribulation, no, you are rich. Believe who you are in Christ and it will change your perspective on who you, how you live. Some of us need to hear that. I need to hear that. I live with the worry sometimes of going, oh no, that's not working right. Hear the perspective of the Lord. It will change you. Is that a rebuke? Yes. It's a rebuke to me. Come on, guys. Your perspective is not God's perspective. Align yourself with him. Jesus said, I will build my church despite what it looks like right now, despite how it is. And these guys needed confidence. They needed something to be said to them so that they can go, okay. And you know, in history, as the church has ebbed and flowed, it needs to know, I will build my church. The message is still is still there. The power is still there. We need to hear it. Elders, we need to hear it. Planting churches, we need to hear it. Going on from Wrexham, we need to hear this. That Jesus says, I will build my church. However backed up that you feel right now. So Jesus says, guys... Come and build with me. I think that's a win-win, isn't it? Come and build with me. That's the message behind this. And he's saying that to us. Why don't you build with Jesus? Build where he's building. That's a good place to be. And the church, you know, I think it's really interesting. Uh, Throughout history, there are times when it's been really uh, beleaguered. Uh, It's been persecuted. People have tried to stamp their foot upon it. It has been martyred. These guys, some of these guys would know martyrdom. It has been rejected and maligned. It has been ignored, liberalized, politicized even. Even in our day, we've been politicized out. It has been apostatized. And we are made on East Enders or Neighbours or any other soap to look like a bunch of losers. That's how the, the media portrays us. But the truth is this. You can't crush the church. Try if you will. You won't do it, guys. It is an impossibility. It is really funny. I just think... I mean, I don't know whether you've noticed things. People go, they say to me, Nigel, there is a new law coming out of Parliament. What are we going to do about it? And you just have to go, Jesus said he'll build this church. Why am I worried about it? 
They can make as many laws as they want, really. But Jesus will build his church. We need to think. And we go, no, the law. And you've got to go, no, Jesus. Let them make as many stupid laws as they want to. Jesus has got one overriding, overruling law. His law is this. I'll build my church. No, 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 no. Why are you worried? Let them do what they want. Jesus will build it. It's not a problem to him. Okay, let's move on. I'm not sure that I'll finish all this, but I'm hoping that Phil, in the midst of this, there'll be some sort of triumphant hymn at the end of it. So I'm just giving you... So he's he's now not going to listen to anything that I said. He's going to triumphant hymn, triumphant hymn. Uh, without any qualifiers, without any caveats. Look at this. Jesus said this, I will build my church. That is a divine promise. A promise. Who from? Jesus. How is Jesus described? True and faithful. That's how Jesus is described. He's pro- he, he is fully God. And it is God who cannot lie. Magnificent. He can't, like, he can't speak an untruth. He's not like me. He, he can't promise. Who, who cannot promise something and, and sort of not do it? He's got to do what he promises. He's the one who keeps his word. He is the ultimate promise keeper. Now, the future tense doesn't mean there hasn't been do, doing anything. It just means emphatically that he's, doing, he's going to do it. This building of the church is not a big wind-up thing. Come on, guys. Jesus is going to build his church. Hey! Sort of thing. And we all get excited about it. And then Monday morning comes and he goes, well, look at all the... It, it, it isn't like that. It comes with a divine promise. It's backed up with a promise. So let me try and help us with this. If you look in Titus, you don't have to do this, chapter 1 for a moment. You, you, you look in there and you, you see these, the way that these divine promises work. And the Apostle Paul uh, starts off by giving some of the main components of his ministry. He says, uh, I am a servant of God. Um, I'm sent by God. Uh, my message is to stir faith with the elect. And I want you to know knowledge and truth. Oh, and I want you to be godly. That's how he starts off. And uh, he believes that the message that he brings, this message in Titus, will bring eternal life. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? He's writing a letter and believes the consequences of it will bring eternal life. That's magnificent. I'd like to write letters like that. And then he says, to back this up, how can you say all those things then? How can you believe all those things? He says, I can believe all those things, verse 2, because I have a God who never lies, who has promised these things before all ages began. That's how he says I can do it. And for Paul, the strength of his ministry was not the message, or not just the message. It was the fact that the message comes with an incredible weighty promise behind it. It wasn't just words. It was a promise with power that came through. And that promise was that God would redeem a people from before time. He made a promise that there would be an elect. 
that there would be that they would pursue a path of godliness that they would live in the hope of eternal life those are the titus words and he said i've made you a promise before time so paul could say i'll go and build then i will go and build it wasn't that paul just said i'm an educated man i can communicate he said I can go and do this because there's a promise behind it. To Timothy 1 verse 9, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before ages began. God made a promise. He made a plan involving Jesus Christ that involves salvation and a gathering of people in eternity before time. This is part of something that God wanted to do. Hebrews calls that divine promise, I love this, an eternal covenant. It adds confidence to the message. We can be confident because the message has been given to us before the foundation of the world. So God made a promise How did it happen? I'm just going to take you on a theological little trip here. Please bear with me. Um, This is just one of those sidelines that I go. But I want you to try and see this. I want you to try and understand that I make promises. It goes something like this. Uh, Nigel, um, could you do this for me? Uh, Yes, dear. Uh, And uh, then it goes something like this. Uh, Nigel, did you remember to do the... I haven't forgotten it, dear. So I want you to know that I I want you to know that that we are promise breakers. But I want you to, to try and see something here about why this promise cannot be broken and what we actually live in. And it's a little bit of a theological journey, but bear with me. John seventeen, twenty twenty uh, four Jesus prays this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That actually is a massive statement. Uh, And the reason that it's massive and that I can't capture its significance is that Jesus is saying this, Father, there are people that you have given me and I want them to be with me where I am in your presence. And I want those people to see what I am seeing right now. And here's the line that was done before the foundation of the world. So before time, way back in eternity, before the foundation of the world, here it is, the Father loved the Son He loved the Son so perfectly that he desired to give a gift of love to the Son. What will that gift of love look like? It will look like a brand new Nissan Qashqai. (laughs) Sorry, but I like them, all right? So... What it will look like before the foundation of the world is you. That you were the Father's gift 
to the Son before the foundation of the world. It wasn't just that you were a number in salvation. God, let's save a few. Let's have a few in the kingdom. Let's have a people. No, you were a gift of love from the Father to the Son. Extraordinary. If you were the Father, what would you give the Son? Bunch of flowers, chocolates, that's, you know, you, what would you give him? Perfect planet to go and live on? Something of that ilk, you know, perfect waterfalls and giraffes with shorter necks, I don't, you know, that sort of stuff. What would you give? You would not have dreamt that the gift of love would be you, would you? You see, it isn't just salvation that has been secured. You are the gift of love to the Son. So how is it that Jesus could die for you? Because it wasn't just that it was his love for you. It was the, it was the gift. That was an extraordinary thing. <laughs> well, I like it. You can see this in John 6, familiar words. Verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Why? Because they're a gift, a gift of love. Continues, for I have come down from heaven, why? Not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And, and what is the will of him who sent me? That I should lose nothing, but raise them up on the last day. Why would I want to raise them up? Because they're a gift to me you are a gift in other words look I've come to do into the world to do the father's will the father's will isn't a vague idea the father's will is for me to come and do redemptive work on the cross that will provide salvation by which the father can give me a people a redeemed humanity as a gift and my part to secure them I will die I will rise again, I will provide resurrection for them and I will gather them as a people. (laughs) Now, back to the promise thing. Here's the one promise. The promise is that you are a gift to, from the Father to the Son. When you go to 1 Corinthians 15, it says ultimately... All things, which include the church, will be put into Christ's control when all things are subject to Christ. Then he says, all things are put in subjection that God may be all in all. That's hugely complicated. But what I want to do is try to simplify it for you. Because it is magnificent as well and makes me get very excited. The son will say... I have received this uh, redeemed humanity as a gift of love. I have received to them. And then in those verses, what it is saying is that now I give them back to you as my gift of love from me to you. Complex? I know. Beyond me? I know. Yes. What you see here is a binding, unbreakable, indestructible promise to people. That's what you're living in. You can't, that's why you can't be lost. 
because, it, because you are a promise before the foundation of the world and between two parts of the Trinity. One as a gift here that way and another one as a gift that way. And if you like, it sort of keeps going like something like this. It goes, you know, Jonathan, I love you and I'd like you to get, let's do it this way. And this is how it goes, because I want you to imagine eternity. So, uh, Jonathan, if you could stand, all you've got to do is just go say, Nigel, I love you, and I'm giving you this as a, as, as a gift of my love. Okay, Jonathan, I love you, and this is my gift of love to you. Nigel, I love you. This is my gift of love to you. Jonathan, I love you, and this is my gift of love to you. Okay, then. No. <laughs> Nigel, I love you. Thank you. And that is what's going on in eternity, forever and ever. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. And what that means is quite simply this, that that's why you cannot lose your salvation, guys, because of these sort of things. And that is going on. So how does that work? It is immense because it means that when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail in it, He's saying, I'm coming to earth, I'm going to die uh, to bring a redemptive work and I will do all that I can. And the reason that I'm going to do this is that this is because it is an eternal expression of our love. That you are wrapped up in this. And that means the certainty of the church is incredible. It is unwavering unmoving. There is an absolute promise that God will build this church because it's wrapped up in these eternal purposes. So when you get to Acts and you read Acts, Acts is not some sort of explosion that happened in, well, we, you know, we had the Gospels and then it all happens in Acts. It actually all happened before the foundation of the world. You just saw it in Acts. So when you get to chapter 2 and verse 39 and you hear the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and your children and all who are far off, Jew and Gentile, and then it comes in, and to as many as the Lord should call. It's, it's a wave that's coming through. goes on, verse 47. The Lord added to their number day by day those that were being saved. What is church? Church is God collecting his redeemed people. And you can't stop that, guys. That's why we should get out there and do more than we've ever done in our lives because in eternity there's this promise that's going on that's eternally happening. It's placed down into humanity and we have got the joy of being able to see the fruit of those things. God, let us have a godly perspective of church. Don't you get fed? Oh, no, don't get church. Can you imagine what Jesus... Come on, guys. We need a high view of church. It's why in Acts chapter 5, it says, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord. It's because redemptive history is breaking through. Acts chapter 11, verse 24. It says a great many of people added to the Lord. Acts 13, 48. The Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And as many as appointed to eternal life believed. Catch this. If we could only harness our belief in God's belief for the church. We would be the most powerful weapon on the face of this earth. 
We have to believe what he believes, that when we harness this, we can see God move into communities, nations, towns, cities. Because God will not stop gathering a redeemed people. I will build my church. I will build my church. And that's far bigger than we should, uh, than we should just... It is just bigger than that, isn't it, really? Please understand this. The primary reason for your salvation is, is, is not just so that you would go, not go to hell. Actually, it's not to make you happy. The primary reason for you being saved is that you will bring glory to Jesus and be involved in his purposes and be swept up and build what he's building and be where he is. If God's doing it, it can't be stopped. Why don't you align yourself with what God's promised and is doing? Get involved in the purposes of God. Make building uh, the church the priority because it's his priority. It means that we can confidently put our shoulders to the plough and build church because there is a heavenly weight behind it. Be church people. Hear this respectfully. It's the only institution that Jesus has said that he will build. It is. Hear that, students? I just want to say this respectfully. He did not say he will build a Christian union. He did not say he would build organisations. He said, I will build my church. We want you to be involved in the Christian union, but we want you to build church because that's what Jesus said he will build. So I'm going to do one more thing and then I'm going to stop because I'm getting bored with me. I just want to put this into perspective just a little bit. Um, Jesus said, I will build my church. So what does that mean? It means that the church is his by right. The father said it was. The the father made the pledge to, to give the son redeemed humanity. He possesses this church. He owns it. Every member and leader needs to hear this. This is not just your church. This is his church it's his church I find that an awesome thing I have to sometimes admit that uh, Callie and I have often had a conversation that goes something like this would it have not been easier Nigel if you were still an engineer the answer is yes and the answer is because I worry sometimes I know the Bible tells me that I shouldn't but I worry I worry about building something that does not reflect Jesus. And if you want to know what causes me to lose sleep, it is that one. It is literally that that one. And Callie's often said to me, maybe it would be easier. And the answer is, yes, it, yes, it would. Because if, I, I mean, if I'm an, uh, an engineer, I wouldn't have to worry about it so much. But then I find the interesting thing is that Jesus just says, I will build my church. He actually says that he doesn't say that leaders will build it. He doesn't say that members will build it. He he says he he will. But actually, before God, although I'm the pastor of the church, 
we'll all be accountable before God for our works on earth. It's just simply the way. I want us to try and see then what is all this about and how can we see it. If you look at John 10, and you haven't got to do that, where Jesus is speaking of himself. He's in verse 14 and 15 he says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and and my own they know me just as the father knows me and I know that you're the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. It's well, it's it's this thing. It, it's uh, I know my own and my own know me. That's that's how it works guys. It is literally that that level just on a more corporate nature. You, you are not your own, said Paul. You've been bought with a price. You, you are not your own. I am not my own. He's purchased you, what with? His blood. You, you are not your own. You've been purchased with blood. By a lamb without spot. And uh, John goes on, verse 10, 15. I lay down my life for the sheep. And the fruit of that comes in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will not perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. It is about a relationship with Jesus. That's, I hope, why you are here. It isn't about anything else. Let me just clear that up. Church is Jesus Christ. It is. When Jesus said, I will build my church, he's saying, I have a, I am having, I'm going to have a personal relationship with a collection of people. They are mine. I'm not just the architect and the builder, I'm not just the key or the cornerstone. I am the very life and essence of the church itself, the focus of the church. Paul told the Colossians, he lives in the church. John says he walks amongst the lampstands. His life should pulse through church. It should not be primarily about our needs. It should be about him. Our worship should reflect Jesus. Our preaching should reflect Jesus. Our gathering should be to Jesus. Friendship, family, all those things. Highly important primary thing is Jesus. That's why we gather. The focus that we come. Why do I get out of bed? Why am I coming to church? To meet with my friends, Jesus. That's why I'm coming. It's how, how, how it is with me. That's how it has to be with you, to make it work. It will not work for you guys if the reason that you come is not Jesus. Let me just say that to you. Because you are then building something that is not what he's wanting to build. You, you have to come and say, okay, I'm gathering with these people, with this one promote Jesus. He is the focus of, of everything. I like... Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, because I think it it explains salvation and puts it into a context. Because sometimes what we do is that we separate church and salvation from it. 
Paul never does that. He's, he does this in, in, chapter, in Ephesians 1.15. He says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Verse 17, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation of the knowledge of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And that what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards, uh, towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he was raised from the dead, seated with him in the right hand of heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name there is named, not only in this age to the age of come, to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as what? Head over all things, the church, which is what? His body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. How does Paul see the hope to which he's called you? The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, the immeasurable greatness of the power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? How does he see the resurrection? How does he see the rule of God in heavenly places? How all authority and power and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this age to the age to come, he sees it in the context of the church. He places it in the context of church. He tells you that the way that your salvation is worked out in fear and trembling is in the context of church. It's about him and it's about us gathering to him as a redeemed people in the context of church. So the church is his body. Verse 22 ends by saying, God gave Christ as head over all things, the church. Verse 23 refers to the church when he says, it is body. We now make up his body. We work out our salvation and we identify ourselves as Jesus' body. If, If the government wants to know what Jesus looks like, they should be able to look at us and see Jesus at work in the church. We should be clearly identifiable as him. That's what the Corinthians passage is about. Here is this one magnificent person. Now the characteristics are divided up into them, which is now the ear and the eye and all that sort of stuff. No, we're it. We, we represent Jesus on earth. That's what we now do. We are his body, his earthly body left. He left his spirit. It is inhabited in the context of the church and we become the body of Christ. We hear this, guys. He has gone. He, in his going, he said, I will build my church. He leaves what? Does he leave his body? Yes, he does. We're it. We are the body. We are the body of Jesus. Extraordinary statement, but that's what we are. Guys, it's magnificent. What a responsibility. So when you sort of say, well, you know, I can't can't come, it's sort of like Jesus sort of saying, well, neither can I. Do Do you not see the connection? When you say about the church, you refer back to Jesus. It is an eternal, magnificent picture. 
That's, that's the, the whole idea of it. So when you sort of say, you know, naff church, you actually go, naff Jesus. That's the logic of it, if you can see it. It's just a magnificent... But, but can't you see, if you have a magnificent view of it, and a wonderful view of it, you're actually saying, in just directly, what you think of Jesus. Because the two are connected. Same thing. Christ fills all in all. Verse 23, which is his body. And the fullness of him who fills all in all. What does that mean? It means that uh, before eternity, Christ filled everything and did and uh, was there in all and through all and all that sort of stuff. How do we find that demonstrated now? How do we find the presence of Jesus right now? It means that what he does is that he demonstrates his presence in the church. That if people want to come and find Jesus, they come and find it in the church. The presence of Jesus. His body, his presence. So we demonstrate his body. We also, we should be able to experience the presence of Jesus. So that's what we've got to really fight for, guys. We've got to really fight for the presence of Jesus amongst us. So the non-Christian and any visitor or anything that comes amongst us, they can experience the presence of Jesus. And we have to be fight, fight for this because this is what Jesus wanted us to do. He wanted to say, look, this is the way that salvation works, that I demonstrate the who I am, that my presence is manifested out through the church. Through the church. The manifold wisdom of God will be displayed carries on. Christ is head of the church, puts all things subjection to his feet, and he gave him as head over all things the church. The rule and authority of Jesus is found in the church. That's where you have things, don't you? And how is that found out? It is found out, sadly, through people like me. How does God rule things? Well, what he does is that it happens something like this. Let me try and explain you a caricature of this. What happens is that somebody gets saved and they say, now my authority is Jesus and no man is ever put you know, over me. I do what I want to do because God is above me and, and I do, you know, and I'm communicating. The, and when they say those sort of things, you, you, I've had those sort of phone calls. If I had one of them, while I was painting Tim and Rachel's bedroom to be I had one and I was just thinking and what's really funny is that the person didn't know uh, they wouldn't give me their name they wouldn't tell me where they were from but they wanted to give me a piece of their opinion and I'm painting and Callie's cleaning a window and Callie's looking at me going what are you doing and it's one of these people that say no I'm saved you know and it's just me and the Lord and everything is that does not demonstrate the rule and authority of God. The rule and authority of God is demonstrated in the context of sh- church. If you, you need to understand that there are people over you in the Lord. And the reason that you do that and submit yourself to rubbish church leaders like me is because in doing so, you demonstrate that Jesus is all in all and rules and has an authority. That's how you show it. That's exactly how it works. So when you come to somebody like me, and, you, and some of you graciously do that, you allow me to speak into your lives. In doing that, it isn't just, well, here comes Nigel again with a little bit of pastoral advice. No, you are demonstrating who Christ is. 
That's the magnificent thing about the church. If you take it out of that, you demonstrate not who Christ is. Do you see this? That's why the, the church is magnificent. Because it puts all of these... Oh, my voice is getting higher. <coughs> I just want to do one bit on the end of this because I, I just want to I, I just want to do one if one little bit and then I'll finish. So I'm just going to bit because so. Jesus is the church's purpose and our application. It should be our vision, the reason that we gather, the reason that we serve, the reason that we give. The more Jesus is glorified, honoured and proclaimed, the more we look like his church. Jesus is the pinnacle of everything in the church. Everything must reflect Jesus. It's just that, really. Can I just deal with one thing? And that is the rubbish stuff that is out on the internet about the gates of hell should not prevail against it. And then I'll fil- finish with that. I did say that, fin- but it's that one. I just want to deal with this one thing because I've never read so much poppycock in all my life about this one verse. It, it, the internet is just littered with rubbish sometimes, isn't it? Please, you know, if I just say to some of you guys that want to preach, buy commentaries of known people. Buy them of known people that you do because sometimes what happens is that you you buy you get, you get the first thing is the instinct to, is to go and have a look what the internet says so i idiot i thought i will go and look what the internet says uh, and all i did was just get wound up i just what's up with doing the most of this <laughs> let me just try and explain this one verse to you and this is about this one. Verse 18, And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What, do, what does the internet say? The internet says that uh, I've heard uh, uh, that we're in Christ and we're strong and when the enemy attacks us, we can stand triumphant and that's, the way that, that's basically the way that this is. Now, let's just get some things here. This is not talking about an attack. Just pure logic. That's because, did you understand the logic? We're in Christ. We are strong. When the enemy attacks us, we can stand and be triumphant. This is not an attack. When was the last time that you knew an army attack with a bunch of gates? That's the first thing. It doesn't even make sense in the first place. So what are you doing? Gates are not weapons. Are they? You, did, you didn't see anybody with a wooden, and uh, you know... Fancy scroll work, you know, all that sort of stuff. You know, oiled hinges going, come on, let's get them, guys. It's just ridiculous. What are you on about? She cannot be attack. Stupid people. <laughs> Look, let's do it very simply. What is a gate for? A gate is for keeping somebody in and letting somebody out. Okay? That's the idea. It's the idea that the church will not have the gates of hell closing in around it and shutting it in. The word prevails helps you. I overpower, dominance, victory. There aren't any gates that can dominate the church. There isn't a fence. There isn't a wall. There isn't a fortress that can keep the church captive or subdue it. That's the way that it is. Not even the gates of hell or the gates of Hades. Not even death itself will imprison the church. 
That's the wonderful thing. It will not be imprisoned. It will not be shut in. I'll finish with this. I think that Satan knows the plan. Satan wants you to think that he can destroy you and destroy the church. He wants you to know that he can make you captive. He wants you to think that nothing can be built here. He wants you to... He wants you to believe lies. And let me say this, many of you live according to a lie. And that is what a Satan wants you to do. And the reason that he wants you to do that is this, that Satan will always know scripture better than you. Now that's not an insult to you, that's just a biblical fact. And he knows the fearful and terrible consequences for a people who will believe I will build my church. He knows that. So if he can stop you coming, he's going to do that. He's going to thro- if he can throw you off guard, he's going to do that. If he can break relationship between brother and sister and brother and brother and sister and sister, family, family, he's going to do that. He's going to do everything that he possibly can to muck up church. That's what he wants to you to know. But I want to do another side of this. <laughs> you know, every time we get out of bed and gather and pray like tonight <clears throat> and worship like we did this morning and fellowship like we did Wednesday and share the gospel, I think he really detests it. I think we really wind the fella up. I think that his whole kingdom detests it and gets wound up and gets really angry. You see, the last thing that he wants is a a whole redeemed humanity believing that the church can advance and grow, that salvation can come, that communities can change, and that nations can be one. And how do I do that? I keep you low. That's what I do. I keep you in the sort of nitty-gritty of life. I keep you away from God and his church. What does the gates of hell mean? It means that in his heart... He wants to take the church prisoner. No. We need to be militant about this. I will not be taken prisoner by him. And what do those verses mean? He can't do it and, not, and death can't do it. Death can't do it because even if death does come, we go immediately to be with the Lord. And death hasn't done it in history. So I want to say this. Come on, church. Build what cannot be thwarted. Put your backs to what cannot be stopped. We, it's a privilege to be a part of a church. Be proud of your church. Jesus is. Love 
what Jesus loves. And build what Jesus said he will build.